You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Even in the 1960s, a century after the Civil War, it was still almost impossible for African Americans to vote in Mississippi. Thousands of civil rights activists working alongside local residents tried to change that with a campaign called Freedom Summer in 1964. People poured into Mississippi from around the country to register black voters. A lot of the volunteers were college students. More than a thousand activists were arrested. Dozens of black churches were bombed or burned. And several people, civil rights workers and those who supported them, were murdered. When the summer ended, most of the student activists went home, but they continued to support the movement from their campuses, including Berkeley. So the people who come back from Mississippi are setting up a table at the edge of the campus to raise money for the civil rights movement. That's the voice of Mike Miller. He worked in Mississippi in 1963 to help lay the groundwork for Freedom Summer. After that, he returned to Cal as a grad student. And the university decides, after we've had all, these, all this history of free speech on the campus and finally thinking that we've won, uh, students thinking, you know, well, we, we have free speech on the campus, you can invite speakers, you can do whatever. And now the university decides uh, you, can't, you can't collect money for the civil rights movement. Serious mistake <laughs> that they made. Um, and so they arrest Jack Weinberg. Jack Weinberg was a student who was challenging restrictions on political activities. He was sitting at a table near the edge of campus, asking for donations for a civil rights group. When university police arrested him and dragged him back to their car, it triggered one of the most famous showdowns of the 1960s. They put him in the police car. Direct action is in the air, so students just sit, surround the police car. The university doesn't back down. And so there's this stalemate, dramatic stalemate. It's big news. Students didn't just surround the police car. They got on top of it and shared their thoughts with the crowd, one after another. Thousands of young people gathered to listen to their classmates make speeches like this one. And if you have the strength here, which you have, to stand to the administration and say, we want free speech on campus, you can have through the rest of your lives the strength to stand up whenever you say, whenever you see something you don't like, you don't believe in segregation, or to say to the government, I don't believe in war. And you really have to do it. This country is yours. The country is yours, and if you want it, you're going to have to fight for it. The standoff continued for 32 hours. Jack Weinberg was in the back of the cop car the whole time and the crowd refused to abandon him, until eventually the university agreed to drop the charges. What became known as the free speech movement had achieved its first victory, but this wasn't the end of the battle. An even bigger conflict was about to explode, and it would reverberate far beyond Berkeley's campus. Students who were supportive of all this stuff, but passive, now they're, they're, they're outraged. I mean, this is, too much. And so it activates a whole new 
layer of people who show up at these Sproul Hall rallies. That protest at Sproul Plaza after Jack Weinberg's arrest, it was a pivotal moment of the 60s. Millions of young people saw that on TV and realized, hey, we can do that too. And you know what? They did. Within a few years, there would be student-led strikes and protests all over the country. America had its most intense social upheaval since the Civil War. But here's the thing. The launch of the free speech movement wasn't just some spontaneous action. The first students to surround that cop car and start giving speeches, the ones who lit the spark, they'd been organizing and building towards that moment for years. And a bunch of those ringleaders were part of a group that not many people remember, even though it was hugely influential. That group was called Slate. A lot of us who were at the center of Slate were very political people. And what we were mostly interested in was number one on the campus, continuing this breakout from the McCarthy era so that the silent generation became, now is becoming a noisy generation. And secondly, could we be in some way a catalytic agent in strengthening or fostering wider community forces? So we wanted to identify with and support the labor movement. We wanted to identify and support and work with the civil rights movement and so on. Mike just mentioned the silent generation. That generation got its name because in the 1950s, speaking your mind could ruin your life. And you didn't even have to be communist. Just being critical of the scare tactics that politicians use to keep people in line was enough to get you blacklisted. All it took was one visit from FBI agents, and you could lose your job, your home, everything. Senator Joseph McCarthy was the ringleader of this so-called Red Scare, but after he died in 1957, things started to change. The silence didn't just magically fade away, though. People started challenging it. People like David Armour. Politics was not even a small part of my life as a, a young person high school until I got to Berkeley. That's David Armour. He grew up in a small town in the Mojave Desert and then came to Berkeley in 1956. Even though he didn't know much about politics as a freshman, he learned quick. He joined a campus political party called Slate. During his junior year, he was elected president of student government. Up until then, student government didn't have any real power. They only dealt with campus issues. Slate folks call this sandbox politics, as in, you know, like little kids playing in the sandbox. David was one of the people who wanted to change all that. There's a, sort of an awakening. Students should be more interested in the issues of the time. And the student government should reflect that by what it does, by what it takes stands on. Here's the problem. The people in charge of the university, the administration, they hated that idea. The university at that time was very was very negative about student expression and any hint of politics. They saw the student government and students as, you know, you have activities and you have dances and you go to football games, but you know, but the politics part of it is sort of, shouldn't really be a part of it. And particularly spontaneous rallies 
And Dean Stone issued a regulation that you couldn't have spontaneous rallies. You had to apply. If you wanted to speak, you had to get a permit from him. And that just seemed to all of us to be absurd. And so we, people started having spontaneous rallies. The university, as students were trying to express ideas, seemed to want to try to get rid of them. You can probably see where this is going. Every time the university tried to rein in the students, it just made them want to fight back even harder. Of course, none of this was happening in a vacuum. Everything going on in society probably made some kind of youthful rebellion inevitable. As the 50s turned into the 60s, the civil rights movement continued to grow, and then you had the anti-war movement too, and the birth control pill, and lots of other interesting new drugs. Culture was going to change one way or another. But here's why Slate is so interesting. The story of Slate helps explain the roots of one of the most transformational periods in American history. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Again, Mike Miller. We got to Martin Luther King, and he came to Stiles to speak in 56. So this is shortly after the Montgomery bus boycott. And uh, hardly anybody knew who he was. I mean, there might have been 30 people. Within a few years, Martin Luther King Jr. would be speaking to crowds of hundreds of thousands. And MLK wasn't the only important person who spoke in Stiles Hall during the 1950s. This small community space near Berkeley's campus was like an incubator of ideas that started spreading fast, even by 1960, four years prior to the free speech movement. The, the silent generation period is over. After we started Slate, we started getting phone calls, letters from all over the country from people on college campuses. How'd you guys do it? Can you come tell us how you did it? We want to do it here. How did they do it? How did a relatively small group of college students who decided that they wanted to change the world actually do it? And what did they accomplish? That's what we're going to explore right now on East Bay Yesterday. Today's episode is a collaboration with the Oral History Center at UC Berkeley. The interviews with former Slate members were conducted by Martin Meeker and Todd Holmes. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. The reputation of the 1950s is the decade of prosperity and conformity. But even though you wouldn't really see it on TV, there were still a lot of problems. Berkeley students who wanted to do something about those problems didn't have many options. One exception was a place called Stiles Hall. Stiles Hall is the University of YMCA. And it was the one institutional center at Berkeley where people left of center, liberal left, kids gathered and talked about politics and did things. Stiles was located on Bancroft, just around the corner from Sprawl Plaza. There was nothing that special about it. It was just a concrete building with some offices, but it did have something useful. There was a big room. I think it would seat probably, at the maximum, it would seat maybe 125 people. And there were folding chairs and a closet and you'd bring the folding chairs out for speakers who were invited to come, come visit at Stiles Hall. So you'd go there after school, and there might be a coffee hour. Just having a place to gather was huge. 
It gave students a place to host speakers and debates. Some of the people who hung out at Styles were international grad students or people who came from left-leaning families, so they already had strong political beliefs. But some folks just wandered in because they were curious. Again, David Armour, who eventually joined Slate and became the president of student government. To me, it was all very new and very, I, I was, had to learn so much because I just, I didn't have the same background that these folks did. Like a lot of the students that hung out at Styles, David came from a working class background. The first issue that got him into politics was civil rights. At the time, there were still barbershops and restaurants in Berkeley that refused to serve black customers. David just knew that was wrong. So he joined the small groups of students who would do sit-ins and other protests at these places. The protests worked, and not just at barbershops and restaurants. Again, Slate co-founder Mike Miller. At Stiles Hall, there was an interest in doing something about discriminatory listings and the housing office. You know, they used to have lists, you'd go and look, uh, no Negroes accepted, or I don't know how they said it, but it was explicit. We met with the housing office and we got them to end their discriminatory listings. Around 1957, some of Mike's friends decided to form a group called Toward an Active Student Community, or TASC. The idea was to create a campus political party that would get student government engaged in real issues. Our platform was anti-apartheid, no compulsory ROTC. ROTC stands for Reserve Officer Training Corps. It's basically military training. All male students were forced to enroll. Uh, and A-bomb and H-bomb testing, higher wages uh, for the, in the student store, no discrimination, racial discrimination, things like that. And we doubled the electorate. None of the task people were elected at first, but a lot more students were getting interested in politics and voting. Mike saw that as a step in the right direction. Doubling the electorate told us we were onto something. And so after the campaign was over, we started talking about we ought to formalize this and task would disappear and we'd form a new organization. And we argued, What's, what are we going to name this organization? So people started saying, well, everybody knows this is the slate. In other words, a slate of political candidates. You are the running as a slate. So let's just call it slate. A lot of things happened in the first year or two of slate, but here's what it boils down to. Slate was constantly challenging the university about what they were allowed to do and say, and the university kept trying to clamp down on them. For example, Slate folks wanted to have a rally on campus against racial housing discrimination in Berkeley, but the university wouldn't let them. So they did it anyway and got in trouble. They were always pushing the limits to see what they could get away with. Again, Slate member David Armour, who was elected president of student government in 1959. They were getting concerned that student government was, was not just about having parties, and uh, they started uh, taking action to strip the government from all of its authority. Michael Tiger was another member of Slate who was elected to student government. To him, the university's response didn't make any sense. If college is supposed to be about getting students ready for the real world, well, that's exactly what Slate was trying to do. Look, we're getting ready to go out in a world that's in the process of change. 
And we need to start figuring out how we express ourselves and be involved in that process. It's time to be grown-ups here. Despite all the male voices you've been hearing so far in this episode, there were women involved with Slate from the very beginning. Men got most of the spotlight, but one of the women who held a position of power was Cindy Kamler. My name is Cindy Kamler. Um, if you want to get the whole things, Lucinda Ann Mary Lemke Kamler. Before I get into Cindy's accomplishments, I want to set the stage a little. Berkeley was a drastically different place in the 1950s versus the 1960s. For example, when Cindy arrived on campus in 1957, the women she lived with all had a 7.30 p.m. curfew on weeknights. Everything was very traditional. But there was a countercultural movement starting to bubble up. People in this scene were called beatniks. My freshman year, I can remember going to San Francisco at that time, there were several women that I lived with at the, at the boarding house, and we'd get our black tights on and uh, get on the streetcar or whatever and go to San Francisco to North Beach and stuff. You know, going to some of the beat clubs and hearing some of the beat poets and all that stuff. And Ginsburg and Kerouac and some of those guys. Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac were some of the most controversial voices of the 1950s. They challenged mainstream society. Here's Ginsberg reading the poem Howl, which got his publisher arrested on obscenity charges. Robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invincible madhouses, granite cocks, monstrous bombs. They broke their backs, lifting Moloch to heaven. Pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere about us. Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies, gone down the American River, dreams, adorations. All that was stimulating. Um, it was just sort of people getting up there and really talking about feelings and with emotion and stuff. And I mean, I probably, probably before that, I'd never even heard anybody read poetry except in English class, you know. I think part of it was, was basically, first of all, about self-examination to a certain extent, looking at your life and talking about it and seeing how things impact uh, you. One day, Cindy is walking on campus near Sather Gate, and she hears a couple of Slate people giving their spiel and decides to check it out. I listened and it was like, oh, well, freedom of speech, oh yeah, well, you shouldn't discriminate against people, oh yeah, of course, of course, you know. And next thing I know, uh, I'm sure they asked for volunteers or something. So Cindy goes to a meeting at Stiles Hall, and here's the thing, Slate attracted students from all over the political spectrum, from mainstream liberals to radical socialists, and they didn't always get along. We were in some room with, you know, like a lecture hall, quite a few people there. And um, obviously people were at odds. And I got up and made some kind of speech about, let's rise above all that and come together with what we can and do what we can or something. And, and that's when I got elected chairperson. 
Cindy got chosen to represent Slate because she understood something crucial. If Slate was going to work, they'd have to focus on the issues where everybody agreed and instead of fighting about political differences. Mike Miller puts it this way. How do you bring people together around core values and then translate that, those core values into a practical program that can have some impact in the world? Remember, at the time, Slate was trying to grow to get bigger. In order to do that, they'd need to recruit all kinds of supporters. And as Mike just said, they wanted to make an impact. And they did, by focusing on battles where they could stand together and win. Here's an example. We had men's rooting section and a women's rooting section. That's David Armour again. He's talking about the seating policies at Cal football games. Now, it doesn't sound like a very big issue, but actually it was because it was an example of gender discrimination. The men had the center best seats, right, in the center of, of the stadium. Women's section was on the side. So women were, were put in an inferior position from the point of view of viewing the game. It had been that way for years and years. Slate passed a resolution to change this, but they went even further. David's wife, Marilyn, decided to challenge the gender segregation with direct action. She sat in the men's section. A few male bodyguards from Slate went with her, but she still got booed. And frat boys threw stuff at her. She didn't move, though. And eventually, the policy was changed. To me, it was an important accomplishment, even though you might say, well, that's sort of frivolous. Who cares about the rooting section? But the principle of it is very important. Why should women be treated as second-class citizens? I'm not trying to say that everyone in Slate was a perfect feminist. Some of the women who were in Slate remember plenty of macho BS. But Cindy Kamler became a leader of the organization, and she never felt held back by sexism. I just never had the message that, because I was a girl, a woman, whatever, that there were things that weren't appropriate or I couldn't do or anything. And uh, so I didn't even think about it. Up until 1960, Slate members had been creating a lot of local controversy. But that year, something happened that put these unruly college kids in the national spotlight. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? During the Cold War years, Congress created a group called the House Un-American Activities Committee. People called it HUAC. Long story short, HUAC's purpose was to root out quote-unquote subversives. One of the ways they did this was by having big public hearings where they interrogated people about if they were communists. A lot of folks felt like this was an unconstitutional witch hunt. In 1960, when HUAC announced they'd be holding hearings in San Francisco at City Hall, students and civil rights groups and labor leaders started planning protests months in advance. Here's a clip from a propaganda film that HUAC made after the event. The carefully organized protest campaign was climaxed with a student directive published just prior to the hearings on the front page of the official University of California student newspaper, The Daily Californian. The directive reads as follows. The Student Committee for Civil Liberties plans to picket the hearings today. It has issued a call for students to attend the rally and hearings and suggests that people laugh out loud in the hearings when things get ridiculous. That is the end of the quote. 
One of the people who was subpoenaed by Huac was a Berkeley sophomore who was a member of Slate. Slate folks were deeply involved with planning and executing the protest when Huac came to town. The whole thing turned into a total circus. People weren't as scared as they were during the height of McCarthyism, so when they were forced to testify, you heard responses like this. I have committed no crime under any of the laws of this country and am not engaged in subversion. If you think that I am going to cooperate with this collection of Judases, of men who sit there in violation of the United States Constitution, if you think I will cooperate with you in any way, you are insane. That was Bill Mandel, who had a show on KPFA radio in Berkeley at the time. Anyway, the message of the protesters was that they were the ones who were really defending American values, like freedom of speech. Some of them got into the hearing room, but mostly the cops kept the protesters outside the chamber, in the rotunda of City Hall. The protesters weren't happy about that. Open the door! Open the door! Open the door! Open the doors! What are you afraid of? This is Americanism! Watch this Americanism in action! I'll turn it back over to that tape that was produced by Huac to explain what happened once the fire hoses came out. During the morning, the judges give orders to the sheriff and police officials to remove the demonstrators from City Hall. As pamphlets continue to be distributed among the demonstrators, police officials once again warn the students and agitators involved that they must be quiet or the orders of the judges will be enforced. The police warnings are met with jeers and boos and renewed chanting and renewed singing. As the mob surges forward to storm the doors, a police inspector orders that the fire hoses be turned on. At this point, leaders of the group give orders to resist police enforcement. The crowd, now in open defiance of law and order, begins singing once again, We Shall Not Be Moved. Riot squad police reinforcements arrive on the scene and are met by boos and jeers from the rioters. The communist agitators give new orders now to the students to sit down with their backs to the fire hoses and put their hands in their pockets after interlocking arms in what is described later by student newspapers as nonviolent resistance. Police enforcing judicial orders to remove the demonstrators from the building take the defiant students one by one by the feet and slide them down the wetted marble stairs of City Hall. This video footage is wild and surreal. The protesters were mostly clean-cut college kids, men and women, and this marble staircase inside City Hall gets turned into a giant water slide. You see the cops violently pushing these kids, and they ride the stairs down like a slip and slide. People who were there described it as a political baptism. When Huac made the video, Operation Abolition, to smear the protesters, they badly miscalculated how the public would respond. Again, Mike Miller. The uh, Huac film ended up being a recruiting tool for the student movement. Uh, it boomeranged. I think it really boomeranged on, on Huac. Students from all over the country saw that video footage and decided... I'm moving to Berkeley. I want to be a part of that. And a lot of other student groups who were directly inspired by Slate started popping up everywhere. I mean, there were dozens of campuses that we were in touch with that were starting campus political parties. 
but that qualitatively changed with the sit-ins. The, the spark became a flame, a blaze, really. In 1960, the same year as that HUAC hearing, a small group of black college students in North Carolina launched a sit-in campaign to challenge racial segregation. They went to a whites-only lunch counter, and when they were denied service, they simply refused to leave. They did this over and over again, and each day the protests got bigger. Pretty soon, thousands of people were doing this all over the country. There had been sit-ins before, but this one was at the right place at the right time. Over the next few years, student groups would become a huge force in the civil rights movement, and they would win many significant victories. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. In 1964, a bunch of college students, including some Slate people, started protesting at one of the fanciest hotels in San Francisco, the Sheraton Palace. The plan was to picket the hotel until it changed its racist hiring practices. A bunch of the protesters got roughed up and arrested, but they ended up winning bigger than they even hoped for. Instead of just getting one hotel to start hiring African Americans for management positions and equal pay, they got all of San Francisco's major hotels to sign on. One of the leaders of this protest was Tracy Sims. She was 18 years old, black, and fresh out of Berkeley High School. Here she is speaking at a press conference announcing the agreement. We came in here dealing with the Sheridan Palace and we walked away with an agreement covering 33 hotels. Just listen to that crowd. They were ecstatic. This is why social movements were so optimistic in the early 1960s, because they were winning. Remember how I mentioned earlier that another one of Slate's goals was ending mandatory ROTC on campus? That was another battle they won. Male students wouldn't be forced to enroll in military training anymore. Here's Mike Miller talking about all the campus activism that was happening in these years before the free speech movement. That period is so, the activity is so intense then. Like you could have gone to no classes and gone to meetings and protests and spent all your time doing that kind of thing. When the free speech movement kicked off in the fall of 1964, the university didn't understand that something major had shifted. The students weren't just angry. They were organized. But just listen to how University President Clark Kerr tried to brush off the students' demands. One of the most distressing tasks of a university president is to pretend that the protest and outrage of each new generation of undergraduates is really fresh and meaningful. In fact, it is one of the most predictable controversies that we know. The participants go through a ritual of hackneyed complaints, almost as ancient as academe while believing that what is said is radical and new. Kerr was wrong. Something new and increasingly radical was happening on Berkeley's campus and beyond. By the end of the 1960s, Tom Hayden, 
was possibly the most famous young white radical leader in America. But at the beginning of that decade, before he co-founded Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, he came to Berkeley looking for guidance. Tom Hayden came, he came to campus. I remember meeting him and talking to him. A whole group of Slate leaders met with him because he wanted to learn what was going on at, at Berkeley. He wanted to learn about Slate. I remember it very clearly because, you know, he basically, he thought what we were doing was fantastic and he wanted to try to replicate that at, uh, at Michigan. And then he, he, I think he talked about a national movement that would be based upon these principles. Not long after this meeting, Hayden wrote the Port Huron Statement, one of the most influential political manifestos of the era. It built on a lot of Slate's positions, but went even further. Hayden represented the more revolutionary side of the student movement. In the latter half of the 60s, when the main issue was Vietnam, radicals like Hayden would steer the student movement further and further away from mainstream liberals. David Armour saw this division, this split, coming all the way back in 1960, when he was planning the HUAC protest. We had a lot of new members of Slate that were starting to argue that we need to be more proactive, we need to be more active, we need to do stuff. We need to throw paint on steps, we need to break down, we need to do things to, to make a more dramatic impact. And this led to a big internal division within Slate about these tactics. By the end of the 1960s, militant activists were bombing buildings and robbing banks to support a revolution that never ended up happening. Well, actually, a different kind of revolution kind of did happen, a conservative revolution. Ronald Reagan got elected as governor of California by denouncing the student protesters and promising he would, quote, clean up the mess in Berkeley. Similarly, Nixon won the presidency by promising to restore law and order. My fellow Americans, the long, dark night for America is about to end. On the other hand, it's not really fair to blame this whole backlash on the radicals. The biggest factor that caused Democrats to start voting Republican was, to put it bluntly, racism. Millions of Southern whites ditched the Dems and never returned after President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. And in California, Ronald Reagan whipped up tons of support during his run for governor by denouncing anti-housing discrimination laws. Reagan thought that property owners should be able to refuse people of color. He won by nearly a million votes, and he ended up riding that racial resentment all the way to the White House. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s made a lot of progress, but the fight is far from over. Slate ended in 1966. By then, the anti-war movement was growing, and people just didn't see student government as the best vehicle for activism anymore. But a lot of former Slate members are still fighting for what they see as a better world. And Mike Miller stands by Slate's strategy of finding ways to unite people who don't necessarily agree on everything. After all these years, he still thinks it's the best and maybe the only way to win. It's crystal clear to me 
that if you don't unite a very, very broad base of people in this country, you're not going to change its central features of exploitation, dominance, whatever word you want to use, ruling class, I don't care, power elite, whatever. If you don't bring a whole lot of people together in a common voice of people power, you're not going to change any of that. You can, you can write great pamphlets about it. You can have militant demonstrations. You can do all those things. You're not going to change it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. I'm going to be sharing some photos related to this story, so make sure you follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I also share a lot of other local history-related news. You can find all the links at eastbayyesterday.com. Huge thanks to the folks at UC Berkeley's Oral History Center for collaborating with me on this one. Martin Meeker and Todd Holmes conducted the interviews you just heard, and Shayna Farrell helped set all this up. You can check out all the other great work they're doing at the website of UC Berkeley's Oral History Center. It's kind of a complicated URL, so just Google it. One more shout out. If you haven't seen the documentary, Berkeley in the 60s, check it out. One of the writers of that film was Susan Griffin, who was a member of Slate. And seeing that movie really gave me a lot of ideas about how to shape today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a huge favor and share it. Don't have any marketing budget, so the only way that this show will reach more people is if folks like you help spread the word. Tag me if you do, I'd really appreciate it. And review it on iTunes if you get the chance. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Quantum Jazz, Kevin McLeod, and Digital Primitives. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.